Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And AP Andy is still somewhere. We're not sure. He's not in Cuba anymore. He's gone off to an undisclosed location. Um, I think he might have got a tip on where the best uh, dumpster treats are located <laughs> in the country. So Perhaps somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so he's still um, off on his little rumspringa journey. Mm, that's right. But Every mapache has to go on a rumspringa, and uh, he may or may not come back, depending on what he finds in the outside world. Indeed. Maybe he'll come back with a congresswoman girlfriend. Who knows? So our guest today is Samuel Stein. He is a Ph.D. candidate at the CUNY, that is City University of New York, Earth Sciences Department, and author of the book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, out now on Verso Books. Thank you very much. Now, I love how um, you're, you come out of the CUNY Earth Sciences Department. It sounds so, so STEMI. So what is it? Science, technology, engineering, and math? That's right. That's what I'm all about. Right. There yeah. But, the, but uh, yet your book is not, it's not all like algorithms and it's not about like material science. Tell us a little bit about this department and why you seem like a STEM guy, but you're not. I, I think the book is pure science, I'd say. <gasps> the science a, of? The science The immortal of, science the of? The immortal <laughs> science of truth. That's right. Um, yeah. I, I studied geography and they put us in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department over there at the Graduate Center, um, where in theory we have physical scientists looking at the earth and the volcanoes and the ocean and stuff, and then we have human geographers studying the politics of space. And I have some experience because I uh, had taken some classes there way back in the day uh, under a guy named David Harvey. And yeah. uh, it seems like that department is a hotbed of uh, communist infiltration. There's just a bunch of pinkos up in there. Uh, Marxist geography is center, I think, in the entire world, would you say? I would say. I would say, you know, uh, pink to red. Pink you know, to red. The pinks are on the right. Nice. Oh, <laughs> That's where you, we like to keep them. Speaking of Marxist geography, do you know the other Jamie Peck? Oh, I, I've read him many times. Because we would really like to have him on sometime. I think it would be really cute. That's All right. A, that's Other a joke. Jamie Peck, if you're listening right now, <laughs> come on the Antifada. That's great. You said it so we didn't have to. <laughs> Jamie <laughs> Peck, go on the Antifada. <laughs> We've been joking about that for a long time. We really will make that happen, though. He's I've a smart seen, guy. He's yeah. nice. He, he is a Marxist geographer. Right? He is a Marxist geographer. I believe he's in Vancouver. Uh, studies a lot of the same stuff as me, but more rigorously. Okay. <laughs> well, cool. don't sell yourself short. We're going to get pretty rigorous on this episode, you, but not so rigorous that you can't follow. Yeah, Excellent. you can never have too many Marxist geographers, so I, perhaps we'll do an episode with him someday. It's going to be so cute. Maybe we could do a collective pod or something it's like It's funny, that. like, our, our internet presences used to be very easy to tell apart mm -hmm. when I was like... Uh, suicide girl <laughs> slash lady blogger slash music journalist mm -hmm. and he was a marxist geographer but now that i've kind of pivoted to writing more about politics right um and using the terms such as neoliberalism <laughs> uh our our paths are starting to converge has he shifted toward <laughs> <laughs> your old world at all? Mm. Have you been checking out any of the male glamour uh, websites out there to see if he might have tattoos and piercings? And uh, I have not. He's uh, very handsome. Wow. Mm. He's a silver fox. There you go. Well, maybe I'll have to do a little research after the show. <laughs> see, in a different world, you could have married Jamie Peck, which I don't <laughs> think is incest, even though you have the same name. You know, you could have had a silver fox Marxist geographer. A husband with the exact same name as you, mm. which wouldn't be creepy at all. Don't give me any ideas, babe. Mr. and Mrs. Jamie Peck. 
<laughs> Jamie's <laughs> Peck. Jamie's Jamie's Peck. Peck. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, attorneys general. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> there is another Sam Stein who writes about politics. I know. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever fought him? I haven't. I was very proud of myself the day that he figured out I existed. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has Jamie Peck figured out if Jamie Peck exists? He follows me on Twitter. So, oh, yes. Right. Yeah, nice. We follow one another. Yeah. That, you so. should slide into his DMs. I might. I might just do that. Not in like a Russell Brand sexual way, no. but in like a Jamie Peck going antifada sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. It'll be very professional. Indeed. Indeed. So um, our history with Samuel Stein, author of this Amazing book that we're about to talk about right now goes back some years. We have some mutual friends in common. Uh, Sam just reminded me that uh, we first encountered one another at the last historical materialism conference in New York City. Uh, Sam, you were on a panel talking about very similar things to what we're talking about today. Is that right? That's right. That was the first time I ever shared any piece of the book in public. Well, sharing is caring. And uh, unfortunately, we did miss a whole bunch of it. But uh, I heard it was great. Oh, thank you. And this was two years ago this wasn't just now no because right. we just had an hm yeah like two weeks ago this yeah. was two years two ago years but ago. uh the context of that was really interesting and kind of funny in retrospect because here you are sitting in the studios of the antifada but that beautiful I mean, studios no thank you yeah i was gonna say by that i mean the studios of uh sam cedar which we have appropriated uh for our own purposes but uh two years ago our mutual friend asher had asked me for the uh, Verso Books podcast that they have to actually interview you. I think it was some anniversary of one of my favorite books. I'm sure I know an inspirational book for you, which was Bob Fitch's Assassination of New York. And uh, at that time, uh, I think I spoke with you about it there, but... I part of why it never happened is because two years ago I was like I can't talk on the I can't do an interview like with a microphone or what how the hell am I going to do that and here we are with a podcast and here you are so I think Sam we're making up for lost time it's finally happening it's fine it's all happening folks it's fucking beautiful so dreams really do come true <laughs> and you now have a book to plug it's not I just do. your first offering but you also have a book out from Verso and Jacobin so that's what's up yeah, we all we all rise together indeed. <laughs> So before we get into the meat of the episode, we try to get to know all our guests a little bit on a personal level. So um, how did you get into city planning in the first place and mm, also socialism? Mm -hmm. Um, Socialism long before city planning. Um, I don't know. I, I grew up in a household that was certainly comfortable with socialism, whether or not it was itself socialist household. Um, I had kind of like a total ideological break when I was about 15 and uh, that started in anarchism and then moved towards gradually more comfort with the state over time, which eventually put me into city planning where uh, you're like very exposed to anarchist ideas, but not anarchist practice at all. Yeah, you mentioned actually a part towards the end of your book about how many anarchists there are in that particular profession. So many. So That's many interesting. Yeah. You wouldn't think of city planning and anarchism as going hand in hand. What's the connection there? So there's a few connections. One is the ideological roots of city planning in um, certain anarchist uh, ideas about space and about the abolition of uh, city and country and um, creating sort of utopian realities in the present. And so people like... Um, Kropotkin and Recluse, and uh, they sort of inspire some of the early urban planners, um, the the Garden City movement coming out of the UK. Um, 
And so, there, so, so the, the very roots of urban planning are actually in anarchist philosophy. But then you've got this sort of cultural side also where there's a lot of anarchists who like, um, you know, critical mass and skateboarding and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. then they start getting into anti-car politics and then like, well, maybe I'll work for the Department of Transportation and plan <laughs> bikes, uh, bike paths and yeah. fucking sellouts. Mm. <laughs> but I then... guess that's the problem when you don't have an underlying Marxist critique. Well, I was going to say in the, I believe it was in the 50s and 60s, there started to be a, a more and more... Um, ruthless Marxist critique. Uh, I would, I'm thinking of Henri Lefebvre, mm-hmm. especially, and then, of course, uh, the Situationists as well. And then David Harvey in the 70s and 80s really turns uh, the, the, this, I don't know, this analytical project into something quite serious that, that, that you're now involved in. Yeah, and I see that as kind of the, the roots of the modern left um, geography and urban planning tradition, for sure. I mean, I, I, I'm not mad at, at anarchists who go into city planning. Like, I'm happy to have them there. Um, you know, I think there can be sometimes like a, a real intensive focus on the evils of the car and parking. Am I picturing like Fred Armisen's uh, bike character from yes. Portlandia? Like, yes. bike, <laughs> got a bike, rights. bike, come through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a model urban planner for the city of Portland. <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. He probably is. <laughs> well, Portland is suffering a uh, the blight of, not blight, but gentrification. So that's a lot of, that's uh, part of the subtitle to your book. And it's a lot, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. But before we jump into the meat of things, this is the part of the Antifada where we say folks we rely on your support if you would like a you know some bonus content access to our discord server potential goodies that we're going to have in the future beyond the sticker and propaganda packs that we sent out we're working on some new ones of those do go to www.patreon.com slash the antifada to give your money to those devils over there at that website, most of which still comes to us. Uh, we appreciate your support. And uh, yeah, if you want to subscribe, uh, we'll love you forever. Good job, babe. Thanks. I can plug stuff too. Good job. Um, yeah, I also want to thank everyone who came out on Friday to see me as well as Jake Flores, Katie Halper, Matt Taibbi. And Leslie and Jack from Struggle Session uh, at Littlefield in Brooklyn. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was cool to meet some of our listeners who came out to the show. And it was just like nice to see everyone. Yeah, we also ran into some old friends like uh, T from Champagne Sharks. It was good to see him. Uh, we met for the first time a guy who goes by Chad Vigorous, pretty bad lefty on Twitter. And turns out he's cool and smart as fuck. And we will probably end up having him on the show soon. We had a really good time. Great to see everybody. Great hanging out. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for our live show coming up later this summer. So, Sam, your book gives a nice, concise history of the housing question over the last several hundred years of capitalism. Um, We could do, I think, an entire episode on that history. Of Mm -hmm. course, I have my History as a Weapon series, and uh, maybe you and I will be working in the future on that. But we're not going to do the entire thing. We're not going to do 300 years, because as Engels said as early as 1872... Uh, capitalism cannot solve the housing question. It can only move the problem around. So let's begin this episode uh, by outlining for our audience kind of how we got to the current conditions that we all face. So if we assume that all of our listeners are born between about 1970, let's say, and about the year 2000, sorry if you're older than that or younger than that, but that's probably the general spectrum. All of us, uh, and ourselves included, have experienced similar circumstances in our lifetimes uh, around housing, right? So rural 
rural areas that are hollowed out and underserviced, urban areas, which are increasingly gentrified, uh, but have been where most of the decent paying jobs are, uh, and the suburbs, which at one point in time um, in the post-war period represented this, uh, this American dream of home ownership, right? Those suburbs are um, sometimes stable still to this day, uh, but we've seen a huge rise in the last decade of crime, uh, addiction, especially opiate addiction, and of course with the crash 10 years ago, uh, for- foreclosure crisis, right? So kind of bring us over the last like 40, 50 years like how we got to this current state of the uh housing market the fire sector dominance and all that good stuff wow you, you have three minutes <laughs> <laughs> no go ahead and uh just just a basic outline of, of how things changed from that fordist era you know into the period of today right i mean there's a lot of ways to to look at that um period of change we can talk about neoliberalism and we can talk about the capital strikes that happened in the mid-1970s um, one way that I found useful to think about the question of gentrification and uh, the spatial politics of it all was to think about deindustrialization as part of the genesis of gentrification. To think about um, urban space uh, and urban capitalist politics as um, defined by a certain kind of conflict within the capitalist class between industrial capitalists and real estate capitalists. And of course, there were different kinds of capital as well. But those two were, were big blocks that both had demands on the state, but uh, they were slightly different. And so both of them had the same dynamic in which they required things of the state, but they also didn't want the state to have too much power. So they needed the state to provide um, all sorts of infrastructure, transportation, water systems, electricity, everything else. Um, but they didn't want to give the state actual control over um, the things that made them profitable entities. So they've got these demands of the state, but they're limited. Within those demands, industrial capital and real estate capital are asking for a different set of things. Industrial capital is making stuff on land, and as such, they want the land to be cheap, right? The land is a cost factor. Same for the buildings, like the factories. Um, they want their workers' housing to be cheap, not because they're cool people, but because they want to pay them less. And if their workers are putting all this money into housing, they're going to start demanding higher wages. Right, because the way they make a profit is from paying people to make things for them, like literal physical things in the world. And they sell those things and take the profit off the top of that. They're not using the buildings themselves to make a profit. Yeah, exactly. And it's assumed that the building's uh, value goes down over time, not up over time. Uh, The organic composition of capital. There we go. Yeah. So... That's what industrial capital is demanding from the state. They don't want environmental regulation, for example, because they want to be able to do whatever they want to the land, wherever they want. Real estate capital, on the other hand, tends to like some of those environmental regulations because it cleans up space that they can then use for development. They hate anything that makes land values depressed or housing costs restricted because that's how they make all their profit. So there's this internal conflict within the capitalist class. Um, And workers, on the other hand, are demanding all sorts of other things from the state. And so it was planner's job to be mediating between these uh, different interests of capital on the one hand and labor on the other. And that's how we see the development of urban planning uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Of course, by the period that you're talking about, 1970 to the present, we're seeing what we call deindustrialization. But of course, really isn't that. It's just the spatial relocation of production and automation. Um, But it means a lot of manufacturing moving out of the center of the city. So here we are right now in a former industrial building converted into residential uh, condos or rentals or something. 
that's pretty common uh, during this period. Um, manufacturing capital first goes to the immediate exurbs, then to the south, then out of the country altogether. Um, and so that leaves all these vacuums. It leaves a uh, spatial vacuum. So there's all this space that can then be turned over to other more profitable uses. There's an economic vacuum. There's all these people used to work in manufacturing in the city. They're not working there anymore. New York City lost 750,000 manufacturing jobs between 1950 and 1990. And then you've got this political vacuum. Industrial capital is no longer making all these very strong demands on the state for cheap land and cheap housing. And so the finance, insurance, real estate sector really uh, expands its political power and dominates uh, the demands of the state through urban planning. And to, to talk about that, uh, those fractions of capital, when you had that industrial capital that was in the driver's seat in, say, a place like New York City or Cleveland or elsewhere, uh, they also had, uh, let's say, not allies. Yeah, you call allies in the, uh, the working class and the trade unions to the extent that they, too, wanted uh, you know, cheap subsidized housing. They, too, wanted infrastructure investments because the labor unions and the working classes in those, you know, in the city had a lot of strength and a lot of bargaining power. And to the extent that their interests lined up with that industrial capital, the two could have a, a contradictory, but also at the same time, kind of mutually beneficial relationship uh, around housing and development, right? Yeah. And that kind of politics is then foreclosed when industrial capital stops being a, such a powerful force. And we shouldn't think back to that as this awesome period of inter class friendship or anything, but it was um, a period with more political possibilities than we have right now, where it seems like um, everything good that we want in our life is supposed to be done uh, through means that make land more valuable, like things mm. that are good for the real estate industry. And if we get back to the, to the Bob Fitch book, Assassination of New York, he's talking about the Regional Plan Association and other groups that represent um, real estate and finance capital to a large extent, uh, which had had plans going all the way back to the teens and 20s in order to eliminate, say, the docks surrounding mm -hmm. Manhattan, to eliminate the dirty industries that had been in that area. Not out of some, it wasn't a conspiracy, it was a plan uh, that was, again, in the interest of, I forget the statistics, it's something like um, uh, office space, for example, was worth like eight or 10 times uh, more per foot than industrial space was. Right. So they were this direct uh, influence of that fire sector uh, on, on how, this, how the built environment of the city uh, was to progress. Yeah, so it's important to say that, you know, deindustrialization or industrial restructuring or whatever we want to call it, um, it happened for a lot of reasons, some of which were internal to the decisions of industrial capitalists and some of which were external and were pushed by the state at the behest of groups like the Regional Plan Association. And so part of the genius of that book, The Assassination of New York, is um, he's talking about, well, why did this deindustrialization happen? And he shows the plans uh, that the city pushed to make it happen. Then he shows the nonprofit and experts who were telling the city what to do. And then he finds the landowners who were funding the nonprofits. Right. And so he traces mm. it back to, you know, the Rockefellers are his kind of primary case. Mm. But all these landowning families um, that were telling the experts what their expert opinion should be, and then they would present it to the city as this sort of politically neutral idea about good city form, that we shouldn't have all these uses all jumbled on top of each other. And there's some quote in the 1929 Regional Plan Association document about how it jumbles the senses, mm. that you know that we should have coffee roasting in the same area that we have our, our financial sector. 
uh, and so we should split it up and order it out. And it becomes that language of, well, we're just rationalizing the city. But of course, the real rationalization is office space makes a lot more money than right. industrial space. Yes. Yeah. So I want to ask about these um, philanthropic outfits in a minute, but I think I I just want to go over to make sure that all of our viewers understand the differences between... Uh, you're not on the majority report, listeners. Okay. <laughs> Unless we're live streaming this. <laughs> Wait, what? No, you said viewers, not listeners. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Oh, That's Jesus fine. Christ. Um, uh, whatever. Um, I just want to go over so people understand the difference between how profit is generated in an industrial business versus how it's generated in a real estate business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you gave a really good summary of how it's generated in an industrial business business, which is um, capitalists own the means of production. They employ workers to make a thing. They pay the workers a fraction of, of the value that they produce, and then they sell uh, the product on the market to consumers. Real estate capital um, is trying to sell either the land itself or a thing that they build on the land, be it a single family home or a multifamily apartment building or an office building or whatever. Um, and there's a there's a quote in the book from David Harvey where he says something like, um, "Real estate is based on fictitious value of expected future profits." So you're you're always buying a thing to sell it for more uh, later, which is the case in any kind of capitalist industry. Except here we're talking about the most fundamental thing, which is land and space and housing. Us uh, in a lot of cases and, and right and housing yeah. more and more. So. In like the history of capitalism, land has always been a key holder of wealth. But in this particular moment, it's urban housing that's really um, the the point of concentration of global capital. Yeah, that's that's so scary. Like when I'm trying to explain to people why it's bad to have everything be commodified on the market, or like ex- explaining the difference between um, use value and exchange value, housing is a really good example mm. because, right? Housing, we all we all need it, right? Like we all understand this is a thing that humans created for ourselves because we need shelter. Right. We need a place to live. We've been doing this since the dawn of time, but. Under capitalism, this thing that we created for its use value becomes its exchange value on the market. And that leads to stuff like, oh, giant buildings sitting totally empty because like rich people are just parking, parking their capital there and using it as an investment while people are homeless, like right outside on the street. And that's like a very visceral feeling for most people, I think. It is. It is. And we're at a moment of record homelessness at a time where it's also extremely profitable to buy and warehouse property. So there are more vacant luxury apartment buildings in New York City than there are homeless people. And yet we have a record number of homeless people. God. So I wanted to ask you why real estate has become so profitable and so central to the economy at this particular point in time. I think there's a lot of reasons. I wish I had one that was like really clear. Um, so instead, I think I, I often think like this. I, there's a bunch of explanations, which in some ways are all the same thing, but I can only think of it in, in the plural. So one way of thinking about it is we had this crisis of falling rates of profit in industries um, that in some ways created the, the uh, capitalist crisis of the early 70s that was the momentum for, for the neoliberal turn. So in a lot of industries, there was a a falling rate of profit. When that happens, a lot of capital then moves into um, hard assets like land. 
um, which is seen as more profitable and safer in the long term. Land and real estate is also really undertaxed in the United States, and so it makes sense as a speculative venture. Um, we also had uh, things like the financial deregulation that occurred from the 1970s on, really escalated in the 80s and 90s, and it was particularly targeted at housing. So housing became a thing that you could, um, you know, banks could uh, take the mortgages that they had loaned out to a whole bunch of people and turn them into derivatives, which they could um, then sell little shares of all over the world. That's how we got the 2008 financial crisis. I was going to say, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right. We'll find out. All my trenches are good. (laughs) I got tons of trenches still. Yeah. Um, So that created the opportunity for a whole bunch of money to move into real estate. Um, We had quantitative easing more recently, which was that program where um, basically the the Federal Reserve bought out from the Treasury uh, a whole bunch of toxic assets from the banks that was a, a crucial part of the bank bailout. Um, in it, that was the mechanism, but the the uh, effect of it was just to create huge amounts of capital out of thin air for the banks to immediately use. And so they got all this money, and the first thing that you could put it in for a fast return was real estate, and specifically luxury real estate. And so, this this takes us a little far afield from urban planning itself, but. In my mind, all of these uh, contradictions that you're talking about and all these movements of capital and this kind of shift in the entire global political economy over the last 40, 50 years has had uh, Im- immense political repercussions. And I'm thinking specifically of, let's, let's say, the 1980s and the farm crisis. Uh, we had Farm Aid, which was a uh, concert by I think it was Bob Geldorf, right? And uh, they were trying mm. to raise money for all the farmers who were losing their land out west. There was a uh, real crisis in uh, farm ownership. If you go to rural parts of this country right now and you look, there is not just disinvestment, but complete just obliteration of all the social bonds and all of the social services and any potential to have a job outside of some service job somewhere. And then again, like the the uh, the suburban issue as well mm-hmm. that we were talking about. It seems like the way that capital has been moving and the way that the economy is structured, you have a small number of cities, New York City, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, I don't know if you throw some more out, Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, then London, of course, and then uh, other great cosmopolitan cities, which are flowing with jobs, but at the same time, too expensive to live in, and then giant tracts of land uh, across the United States and elsewhere that people cannot find jobs and things have deteriorated. Right. And, and in those places, the eviction rates are the highest. So eviction rates are high in gentrifying cities, but they're even worse in hyper-disinvested spaces. And I think the phenomenon that you're talking about, the words that we geographers tend to use, is, is uh, geographically uneven development. That capital... Um, tends to sort places out into spaces of hyper-investment and hyper-disinvestment, and that's happening to a more and more extreme extent. And I think the you can see it on this macro scale where we have large amounts of disinvestment and relatively small pockets of investment, but that's where, as you say, a lot of the jobs are. There's a ton of money. There's a lot of people living there. Um, so we've got that dynamic, but then even within any given place, you're going to see neighborhoods that are hyper invested and neighborhoods that are hyper disinvested, even within one neighborhood, it's going to be by the block. And then sometimes within one apartment building, you've got apartments that have been fixed up and selling for a whole lot of money. And then others that are, uh, usually intentionally, um, 
you know, allowed to fall apart so that it creates the, the next opportunity for reinvestment. Especially oh, those yeah. rent-controlled ones, right? I Where definitely lived out. in one of those in college, yeah. but um, we'll get to those kinds of stories in the bonus. That's right. We're Excellent. all going to tell some horror stories from uh, our living in New York City for all these years. But no, it's interesting, and, and I, there was a very dark uh, fact uh, in your book, which is that uh, since the crisis that you talked about that was based on mortgage-backed securities, or at least reflected itself in this financial crash that was tied to housing in the United States and elsewhere. Subsequent to that, uh, we've seen hedge funds and uh, large you know, investing institutions start to buy up all sorts of uh, rental properties all over the country. Right. Even, I think you said in your book, trailer parks now, yeah. where uh, the, mm. the price of living uh, you know, on a... Uh, you know, in a trailer on a lot somewhere is becoming more than even those people can bear because it seems like capital after that crisis has doubled down on this fire sector investment uh, to the detriment of, I think, anybody who has to, you know, survive uh, and, and have a house to live in and shelter. Yeah. And it's the same private equity or as we call them in the tenant movement, predatory equity investors who are investing in rent stabilized properties and they're putting in uh, money are they taking out huge amounts of debt to buy up these properties there's no way that the rent rolls could support that level of debt so it's built into the system that they have to raise the rents and evict people the same predatory equity investors are going to these trailer parks in upstate new york and other places it's sam zell it's uh, warren buffett uh, right. every liberal's friend right who's the buying nice capitalist the nice capitalist is yeah. buying up these trailer parks uh, because they've identified a rent gap a difference between the rents that are currently uh, being taken out of this property and what could be extracted if some uh, reinvestment was made or if some legal change was made. Mm. Yeah, this strikes me as one of the incredibly destabilizing features of capitalism, right? Because if we had some kind of sane planning, like say say on the level of the country, mm -hmm. although, you know, ultimately we want a one world government because we are globalist. Uh, but yeah, uh, you could say, oh, let's invest equally everywhere in the country. Mm. That way everyone can get something. The way that these like real estate speculators make money, for instance, is that there are areas of extreme wealth and there are areas of extreme poverty. And um, what whichever one you're dealing with, uh, you can make money on it. Exactly. And then tying it back to your book, too, there are municipal and state policies, and even federal to an extent, too, that, that exacerbate this. Because you talk about the provision of services like parks and transportation in neighborhoods uh, not being essentially about making them more livable for the people, but to continue this rise in property values and speculation, right? So there's the planning aspect of it, right? Yeah, and, and with that, you know, sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes the plan is let's juice the hell out of these uh, land values and rise them up and, and then we'll get more property taxes out of it and we'll, you know, use that on social services or whatever. So sometimes that's the plan. And sometimes it's not. It's actually planners just trying to make neighborhoods nice, but without control over the land. The result of a nice new neighborhood is it's going to be more expensive. And so we've got this spoils system where whoever owns the land gets to keep the accrued uh, value that the state creates. Which or, is a, a social investment, but there it's being privatized, hmm, essentially. It seems like public risk for private profit. Am I wrong? That sounds <laughs> familiar, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, um, there's all sorts of solutions out there uh, for this that are thrown around in the public sphere. 
Uh, we've all heard of the NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard, people. And they're very instrumental in stopping things like uh, high-speed rail mm-hmm. uh, and other sorts of big investments like that. But also even upzoning a place like San Francisco or Seattle, where you have a lot of uh, you know one-family, two-family homes uh, in areas that you could potentially have a 20-story apartment building and fit a lot more people in. So we know about the NIMBYs, but another big movement that's come up to try to address this is the YIMBYs, right? The yes in my backyards. Um, those folks say, like, it is a supply and a de- and demand issue, right? You don't have enough housing in Austin. You don't have enough housing in Berlin. You don't have enough housing, so let's just build up high. So let's handicap some of those arguments for YIMBYism, right? Why doesn't supply and demand have the, the same sort of price regulation function for housing as it does for other commodities in general? All right. Let me say this first, and I've been I've been thinking about this because you know it's not surprising that uh, it's some of the Yimbies who have been giving me the the most critiques of the book. So the one thing I want to say up front is at least the Yimby movement recognizes that the status quo sucks, right? They recognize that the that the system is not working, and they have a set of solutions. And their set of solutions, as you said, is is basically to build more. Um, and we can also break up the Yimbies into the like uh, the ones who align themselves with the ideological right and the ones who ide- align themselves with the ideological left, um, and the ones who seem to say more building of anything anywhere is the solution versus ones who are more careful than that. There's a mix of opinions about rent control, etc. The the I guess I'm trying in the book to um, turn the gaze toward the surplus. Uh, of investment in real estate as a root, if not the root of the problem, rather than uh, the deficit of housing quantity. Right. And so part of that has to do with um, the the problem that we've seen in New York, where if you build up, it doesn't necessarily result in lower land values. So there are people in New York who say, from this EMB perspective, we haven't built enough. Um, but in the the recent years anyway, we have built more uh, apartments than the number of people moving in would demand. So those numbers do actually work out, except we've had a rise in almost the same amount of vacancies. And they're not like accidental vacancies where the landlord can't sell, they're purposeful vacancies of the type you were talking about before, Jamie, where um, it's profitable to buy and hold on to these apartments. Some of them get used as Airbnbs. Some of them are purely speculative ventures to be bought, unoccupied, and then sold again. So until we fix the problem of speculation, the supply thing doesn't even create new homes. It just creates new investment opportunities. Yeah, and a follow-up to that too, as you mentioned in your book, that because of the... Because how much it costs to build a place like New York City or London or San Francisco, invariably when there is new development, it's on the top end, the high end of the market. And OK, so the presumably what people argue is that, well, that will siphon off, you know, some of the, the more wealthy renters, let's say, or investors in housing, and they will live in the luxury buildings, which will open up the older tenements to poorer people. Yeah, but it'll what, create less competition for the middle-income housing, yeah, right? Yeah, right. That, that's, a, that's a supply and demand argument. However, neighborhoods aren't like that. If, you have, if you're in Brownsville or East New York, and all of a sudden you build a, a giant luxury high-rise, it is going to have an effect on the prices of everything around that area mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. start to price out other people as it becomes a quote-unquote more desirable place to live, right? 
right? Right. And and often um, the EMB arguments get made at a very large geographical scale, which then misses the, the difference between a Brownsville and an Upper East Side. Um, and so I do talk in the book about um, flipping some of the zoning protections that currently protect fairly wealthy, mostly white neighborhoods in places like the outskirts of New York um, that are still fairly transit rich and some in the right in the middle of Manhattan um, that are not as dense as the rest of this of the rest of the borough. Um, they've got all these special protections. Then you've got the encouragement of new development, which, like you said, is going to be luxury and less regulations make it otherwise um, in poorer areas. And so if we flip that around, you would have at least like a different dynamic. Um, you're saying if you build that luxury building in the middle of Brownsville, of course, it's going to raise the neighborhood rents. Um, but what happens if you build that uh, building in Forest Hills? Right. The rents are already quite high there. Yes. Um, and if you had some affordability in that building, that would be a net increase in affordable housing. If you do the same thing on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, you're losing affordable housing, replacing it with luxury housing and saying, oh, look, we put some affordable apartments in there, too. And for folks who, know, who aren't from New York, uh, Forest Hills there are people traditionally, who aren't from uh, New York. Yeah, believe it or not, they <laughs> exist. They're out there. Uh, most of our listeners aren't. But uh, yeah, Forest Hills is a traditionally middle class to upper middle class neighborhood that is um, zoned rather uh, sparsely uh, compared to the rest of the city. So you're saying that by putting affordable housing there, as opposed to in you know a, a, a poorer community, you're actually increasing the mix of um, different incomes within that, as opposed to simply only rezoning those areas where people are poor anyways. Yeah, we're kind of doing this like backwards integration thing, where most city planning is geared towards... Um, integrating the city by moving richer white people into poorer and people of color neighborhoods. Uh, whereas what we need to be doing is creating opportunities for people to live uh, in these segregated white spaces and breaking those up, if anything. Um, and that's really not what most cities are doing. So in New York, we've got this program of inclusionary zoning, which means we raise the amount that you're allowed to build and we say some portion of that has to be affordable. But we're really only doing that in neighborhoods that are currently affordable or are starting to gentrify. We're completely leaving out the wealthy protected neighborhoods where a program like that might actually make some sense. Right. But those are politically powerful neighborhoods that are able to say, you know what, we've got what we want, what we need from the city. We don't really want any of this new housing uh, whether it's affordable or not. Yeah, and yes. the Upper East Side and Upper West Side won't even let like a waste transfer center or any other sort of important critical infrastructure, let alone like uh, cheaper housing or homeless shelters in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually recently there some local business owners were I feel like I'm loud. Local business owners were making a big stink because um, they were trying to open up a men's shelter, I believe, somewhere in Bushwick. And they were like, oh, why weren't we consulted? We need more input on this. But like the you can kind of read between the lines in that and say, mm, maybe they just don't want a man's shelter on the same block as their business. Right. And so what you end up having is a right of refusal for uh, wealthy people and for businesses, whereas you don't have a right of refusal for working class communities that say, hell no, we don't want this new luxury building in our neighborhood. This isn't good for us. Right. Yeah. Like I've often heard these programs described as like a Trojan horse for gentrification um, because, yeah, exactly what you said. You're you're still getting to build the luxury buildings in a neighborhood. Um, and they're like, oh, well, people need affordable housing. But the housing in that neighborhood is already somewhat affordable and becomes less so with the presence of these 
big developments. Right. And and at, in you know, 10, 20 years, they'll be counting the number of affordable units that were created. They won't count the number that were destroyed in the process. There so these processes have happened under both uh, really openly craven representatives of capital like uh, Mayor Bloomberg, mm-hmm. as Come well on, people, <laughs> <laughs> as well as ostensible progressives like Bill de Blasio. I'm Bill de Blasio. I'm so, going to do more 421A uh, and it's going to be great. So we give him an Obama voice. Sorry. Yeah. Assuming <laughs> that folks like de Blasio are operating in some kind of good faith, even if they're also uh, doing bad neoliberal policies. Um, what, what are the constraints on politicians in this arena? And what's the argument that they would make in favor of this, this kind of policy benefiting regular working class people? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the constraints are important that we, to understand or else um, we won't understand why we haven't already won. Right. So one way of understanding the constraints that are on cities and mayors and planners is to think about this um, opposite tendencies that have happened under neoliberalism of devolution and centralization. So on the one hand, we have devolution, which is pushing down responsibility for all sorts of things from higher levels of government to lower levels of government, from the federal to the state, from the state to the local. And so local governments become responsible for more and more and more and more. Um, and they have limited means to, uh, to deal with those problems. For example, the federal government used to pay for a lot more of public housing than it does now, used to pay for a lot more of transit operations than it does now. Those things are now cut. Cities have to find ways to pay for them. Um, The one thing that they do have total control over is land use, zoning, planning, development, which means that that becomes the hammer by which they bang every nail. I don't know if I got that metaphor right. Close enough, close enough. Um, So you got that. But then at the same time, you have centralization of control um, where the federal government puts restrictions on what cities can do and states even more so put restrictions on what cities can do. So the federal government, for example, says no new public housing. If you have a net increase in your public housing, we're not going to pay for it. Uh, The state governments, many of them say you can't have rent control at all. And in New York City, um, we had our rent control laws taken away from the local control and brought to state control in the 1970s. And so the state puts all these limitations on how cities can address the problem. So you've got cities being more responsible for all these things, but not having uh, some of the best tools to address them. So that's one of the one set of constraints that got us here. Um, In terms of how these politicians justify it, well, if you were Michael Bloomberg or that kind of conservative, technocratic, we love the market, kind of uh, mayor, you say, we are aiming to produce, or we already are, a luxury city. Mm. That was uh, Bloomberg's line. This New York City is, an, is a luxury product. It's not like, you know, a Walmart. It's a sharper image. Or <laughs> um, it's going to be expensive. And so we will attract the best and the brightest, by which he means the richest and the most oligarchic, to come and buy and we will be, and again, this is his phrase, the world's second home. Oof. Eey. Yeah. 
Uh, no vacancy, Bloomberg. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I'm At just hearing the, the uh, sharpening of guillotines in my mind. <laughs> Seriously. Well, tr- he got three uh, three terms out of it. He so did. whatever he said, he he, he uh, it worked. He um, almost lost the third time, too. Yeah. We actually mentioned quickly the uh, Christine Quinn shit uh, on the Katie Halper episode, uh-huh. how she uh, pulled the strings for him and ended up getting screwed by de Blasio in the end. But uh, de Blasio comes in, right? And so, like, so what's how come he can't do it? What, what's going on? going on there right so de blasio comes in uh saying i'm a liberal maybe he says progressive um and everything i do is going to be all about inequality everything whether it's um you know his actually good stuff about raising municipal wages uh universal pre-k or his horrendous stuff about like bringing in bill bratton as the police commissioner or um, you know, some of his housing and zoning policies, it all gets framed as a big crusade against inequality. So he has this rhetorical device that whatever it is, it's it's aimed at uh, reducing inequality. A lot of what he does around housing, around zoning, around planning, mirrors what Bloomberg did, but with this completely different rhetoric attached to mm. it. So it still tends to increase development capacity in gentrifying neighborhoods uh, and in places that are majority people of color. Um, and it still tends to use luxury development as either the solution to any set of problems or at least a crucial part of how we solve them. And that includes building more affordable housing, which is absurd because if you use luxury development, you're making the city more expensive in order right. to make it cheaper. Uh, and it, it is de Blasio's main way of dealing with the crisis in public housing is by creating more luxury housing, uh, which is something Bloomberg tried to do but failed. He tried to uh, to build luxury housing on the parking lots of public housing in the city. That was Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg tried to, and he really got shut down by public residents, uh, public housing residents. Um, de Blasio has succeeded in doing so. Oh. We've got a couple developments in the works and much more on the way. It's, uh, it's interesting how, like, you talk about these constraints. And so the difference between a Bloomberg, not rhetorically, but actually in terms of policy, is we're going to do inclusionary zoning. We're going to give all these tax breaks for the development. But instead of 10 percent affordable housing within these luxury buildings, we'll give you 15 or 20 percent. Right. That That's sort of like the, the main difference is just how much they're willing to, like, you know, slightly give up, you know, to these giant developers. Yeah. The thing is the same. The the um, they they. You know, de Blasio in some ways gets a little bit more from the developers. His program is like 30% affordable. Um, There's all these quibbles about, is it affordable enough? And that's a real legit question. A majority of African-Americans and Latinos in the city do not qualify for the new affordable housing that's being produced. Um, So it's not affordable enough. There's still not enough of it at 30%, even though that's more than Bloomberg was willing to do. It's still 30%. But then it's always paired with this luxury development, which has these... uh, market effects within the neighborhood that make these relatively affordable spaces no longer affordable. So what's the role of uh, philanthropy and liberal NGOs in all this? Um, Because in your book, you write, um, philanthropic and real estate capital blend to find profits in extreme poverty. And I think most people probably think of these kinds of organizations as being generally good. They represent the community and they're getting the best deal for their people that they possibly can. Um, so, so what's the role of these kinds of organizations? And uh, like, yeah, yeah, it's it's really complicated. This is um, 
part of what my dissertation is going to be about. So my next book is going to be about unions and nonprofit organizations within this real estate state. Um, that line, I think, that you're quoting comes from when I'm talking about homelessness. And I was referencing um, a book by Craig Wilsey, which I think is called The, the Value of Homelessness or something like that, which is about... Um, rich people who make a living off of either shelter housing or back to work programs, mm. uh, programs that pay homeless people ridiculously little wages. To oh, the do. Doe fund. The Doe one. fund. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the most famous ones, uh, DOE fund. Um, and a lot of the business improvement districts in the city got their start by hiring homeless people to do sub minimum wage work. Uh, and so they're extracting value from these homeless people with uh, very few options and paying them far less than they would pay a housed worker. And uh, just to make an analogy, too, there's a lot, rightfully, a lot of pushback against private prisons uh, at this moment in the country, even though they're spreading all over the place. There is still a, there's a similar dynamic within, it sounds like, homelessness and housing, that these people are making massive profits off of a social ill. Right. And, you know, similarly with the prison issue, yes, there are private prisons. Yes, there are prisons who do uh, sub-minimum wage labor, but most prisoners are doing no work at all. And so it's much more of a warehousing situation. In these social service nonprofit um, homeless shelters, some people are doing this sub-minimum wage work. And a lot of people are just getting trained over and over and over and over again in uh, some of it is how to work. But a lot of it is this sort of like Christian ideology about work. Cool. Yeah. Bring that Calvinism back. Yeah. And you, you sort of like earn your right to your bed by going to these trainings where you learn about uh, the the morality of disciplined work. Is Ben Shapiro running these programs? <laughs> what the fuck? That's just astounding to me. I mean, I, I, I believe it, but uh, yeah. God, this and uh, the, totally normal country, folks. The saddest, uh, someone named Gretchen Purser writes about this, is homeless workers who are doing day labor jobs evicting uh, uh, foreclosed homeless. Jesus hell. Christ. Yeah. Oh, Which she calls, world. She calls it something like a, a lateral class war or something oh, like that. God. Wow. Uh, well, speaking of that, um, a lot of the uh, sturm and drang around gentrification, again, not just in New York City, but all over the world, including places like Berlin, is pitting uh, often one group of working class people or downwardly mobile middle class uh, urban professionals what are you looking against at me for? one another. <laughs> I'm not looking at you. I, well, I was looking into your pretty eyes. That's all I was. I was just fawningly mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. you. But uh, we're going to play a short little video right now that was... Uh, Made by, I believe it was like, a art, uh, like an anarchist artist collective about gentrification in uh, Berlin. Fucking fast came this to be in the past, let's say one and a half years. Suddenly, they were all here. All these fucking students, artists, layabouts. The complete mob called creative class. <laughs> always and permanently with these small suck beer club mate bottles in their hands. Suddenly the whole neighborhood was filled up to the back teeth with this folk and suddenly all was changing. 
the rents were no longer cheap. The drug dealers left the Reuterplatz. War houses closed. Instead, we got open-minded and open-gendered galleries. Chunk dealer became to dealer in antiques. And dirty dog shit was turned into peaceful baby buggies. <laughs> More general, this phenomenon is called gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, again, about the optics of this, it seems like so much of it is about, you know, the, the role of artists and hipsters and, and gentrifiers. Uh, it's kind of this most visible aspect uh, or agent of gentrification. Uh, they're referred to as the gentrifiers as though they're making they're the this ones happen. making this happen. Right, yeah. But that isn't the whole story. Right. So bring us through this process where uh, a neighborhood is turned from a disinvested one. Uh, artists are brought in as kind of like the shock troops of that. And then the yuppies come and then, you know, whole neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. What's with all this hipster hate? Do you think yeah. uh, do you think they deserve it or, or what? Does the creative class deserve all the hate with their club Mate drinking. I mean, anyone who uses the term creative class probably <laughs> deserves it. <laughs> you heard that, Fair Richard enough. Florida? <laughs> yeah, because cla- that's not a class it's in the class. Marxist sense yeah. of class, right? No, I mean, Richard Florida really wants to be a Marxist right now, and, and he says he is one. But um, no, it's not a class. And it's also kind of messed up. Like, there's a lot of artists who are working class and who are people of color and who have lived in these cities and lived through periods of disinvestment, and they are completely excluded from this right. narrative of, of who the artist is. Um, yeah, I mean, you can you can make that argument, and that generally in, in my world gets coded as the consumption side argument of gentrification. It's about who moves in um, and what their tastes are, what they look like, uh, what they do aesthetically to the buildings. That stuff does matter. And the I, I kind of deal with it very quickly in the book, but the argument I make is um, it's just like any other commodity. It has to have production and consumption in order to realize value. So the producers of gentrification are the investors, right. the banks that give the mortgages, the developers that build the buildings, the landlords uh, that, that build out the properties and take your rents every month, uh, the property managers. Those are the producers of gentrification. The consumers of gentrification is the new middle class or the uh, the um, hipster or the artist, whatever you want to call them. And it's different in different places. In some places, it will be the pure yuppie. In some places, it'll be the you know hipster who identifies as the cultural opposite of the yuppie. But right. uh, <laughs> both can fulfill that consumer of gentrification function. If we have production without consumption, then you have a failed uh, project. They've put a bunch of money in, but nobody's buying it. If you have consumption without production, then you have unmet demand. There's a bunch of people who would want to gentrify some city, but there's nobody building housing for them right now, uh, so they don't do it. Um, or they don't have the opportunity to do it themselves in the case of artists who turn lofts into um, art space and housing. Yeah, like it's such, it's so, it's so depressing because, I mean, I'm someone who finds value in these kinds of art spaces and like, DIY culture or whatever but I think uh I mean I myself and a lot of my friends in these scenes are really conflicted about their role in all of this right because on the one hand we want spaces where we can afford to live and to do our thing and you know find a community or whatever on the other hand we know that we are part of a very malicious process 
called gentrification that will eventually result in displacing um, not only the people who were there before us, but also us ourselves, right. provided that we don't actually have trust funds, although, you know, <laughs> lots of people say that we do. And just to put a fine point on that, I've lived in the city for nearly 20 years at this point, And I think I've lived in over 20 apartments. Mm -hmm. You know, capital has been chasing me all around the city for so many years. Right. I feel I feel you. They're that. never going to get you. Uh, they've got they got it. <laughs> <many times. laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, I, I, I spent my entire career as a music journalist, pretty mm -hmm. much chronicling the downfall of beloved DIY and independent venues. So like the very first article that I ever wrote for the Columbia Spectator mm -hmm. when I was in college, like God knows how many years ago, how fucking old am I? A long time. It was a long time ago, folks. More than 10 years ago was about um, the sale of North Six, which was an independent yeah, venue in Williamsburg. Yeah. It was great uh, to the Bowery Group, which right. also owned the Bowery Ballroom and Mercury Lounge and how they were actually the lesser of two evils because they could have been bought by Clear Channel, mm -hmm. which owns like everything um to 285 kent uh death by audio that yeah. one really fucked me up yeah. real good and they were cannibalized by vice which is just like a oh, perfect symbol yeah, of that, the irony there is everything so many that's happening on that. yeah. in this world too right yeah so um <laughs> is there a way for artists uh to stand in solidarity with these longer time residents against the forces of capital like maybe this is already happening and i just mm -hmm. don't know about it like what what would this look like? Right. It, it definitely has to happen. Um, I think it's really important that artists not see themselves as special in this regard, that artists see themselves as people who need to live and work in the city just like everybody else and to fight alongside everybody else against gentrification. Um, there's a little too much uh, of the artist as special class who needs special protection, and that ends up dividing up the tenant movement um, and also giving the city the option of creating new solutions just for artists, right. which then gives the developers the cultural cachet that they uh, thrive on. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it on both sides. And like, obviously the people who were there first have more of a right to be angry. And, you know, I'm never going to tell someone they shouldn't feel negatively about something that's going to impact their lives. But I see like, a lot of hatred directed at the most visible people like the artists or whoever and you miss the forest for the trees which is like the people with the actual money and the actual power not to mention the system itself so like and when you talk about the system itself uh when jamie and i lived at our last apartment which we, we did for many years uh two three years into us living at this relatively cheap apartment uh all of a sudden the cops were just on the corner all the time mm -hmm. like no, no, oh. that happened when we first moved in babe fine you tell the fucking story oh my god when we first moved in um it was like yeah it was a gentrifying neighborhood of bushwick um and there were cops on the corner all the time and I asked the cops, I was like, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, people have been getting robbed. People have been getting robbed for their phones. And I was like, oh, OK, good to know. And then eventually the cops disappeared because I don't know. I don't know why. See, I could have set it up better. All right. What, it, what you talk about in your book is that the um, that the police are kind of the strong arm of gentrification and that they go in to these transitioning neighborhoods, as they call them, and they make the early entrance to that, the artists and then later the yuppies, feel comfortable living next to people that have less than them and that are often a different color from them and that they feel afraid of. And that is an actual policy that the city and the state pursues, you know, to put police in these areas in order to make them safer 
for that gentrification. Yeah, and they they do that. Um, you know, if we think of like stop and frisk and things like that, the neighborhoods that had the highest numbers and concentration of stop and frisk in New York City were the uh, gentrifying neighborhoods that were um, in the process of transition. It was not so much uh, the certainly the the all white and wealthy neighborhoods, but it also wasn't the poorest and most segregated African-American and Latino neighborhoods. It was the neighborhoods that were going through gentrification. And so it had that economic function of uh, kind of clearing the social terrain for um, the consumer side of gentrification and at the demand of the producers of gentrification as well. Um, You've also seen across the country, police departments using rising property values as a metric for their work uh, being successful. So they will report to the mayor or the city council, look how good a job we did, the property values are rising. Right. So Which they was the intention from the, begin, from the beginning. That's right. 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 So let's, let's get out. Of, I think we uh, understand a bit more now about the hell world we live in when mm-hmm. it comes to um, shelter in this uh, yeah. cap- late, 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 late capitalist society that we live in. So let's... Not uh, late enough. Not late enough. <laughs> we, uh, let's, let's talk about how we make it later, I suppose, yeah. right? So the, the what is mm-hmm. to be done question. Um, recently, Jamie wrote an article on The Guardian uh, about this USA Today infographic. It was actually directly written by a uh, public relations company company working with an insurance company, life insurance company. And this infographic, it shamed uh, this increasingly immiserated working class on its unnecessary expenses, oh, like yeah, right. lunch and personal grooming, right? <laughs> like, uh, I, I came up like it was, I came up with a concept that it comes out, actually, Marx talked about this thing called barracks communism, which was with this very kind of austere regimented conception of what post capitalism would look like Mm -hmm. and i think that it's fair to say that what the ruling class wants now is barracks capitalism right Right. they want us living in these pods that you know you're not gonna have netflix anymore as jamie said in the article instead of netflix and chill it's gonna be stare at the wall and drool (laughs) right so this is really it seems like the future that they want is to take away uh, even like this conception of the american dream um so it seems like this nightmare is, is is being reproduced and i think jamie had a question to this end on uh you know what can be done and what's the future of this. Yeah. So you write in your book that the housing crisis is a crisis of social reproduction, yeah. which means the conditions that the working class needs in order to reproduce itself, basically to keep on living and working, uh, they're going away. And they first went away for the poor, uh, but now it's even starting to happen to rather well-off workers. For instance, um, like Sean mentioned, there are these pods in the Bay Area (laughs) where you can pay $1,400 a month to sleep in a fucking bunk bed. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm $1,400? I think the place is called Logan's Run. (laughs) yeah and like that's like the new normal for people with a college degree um so what's going to happen if that process is allowed to continue unchecked um is this one of those internal contradictions in capitalism that i'm always hearing about i do think it's an internal contradiction in capitalism but i don't think it's one that is automatically going to be resolved Ah. i think capital is quite comfortable uh leaving this to the state to fix and the state is quite comfortable leaving it to us to suffer through ah and so you know if we think of of the those three sectors of like labor which is all of us and the state and capital somebody is going to have to deal with these social reproduction questions and um in this late 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 capitalist stage it is just falling more and more on us Mm. um so you know it's up to us then to 
overthrow this system also, not just come up with the, the pods to, to live in. <laughs> um, so Jamie had mentioned earlier, and you had spoken about these NGOs that claim to represent the community, whatever that means. And not all of them are bad, right? Uh, we have the Regional Plan Association, which is still out there and uh, making some regional plans for uh, the ruling class. And Number four, them... out last year. Oh, great. Yeah, check out volume four. It's even better. I mean, uh, assassination, part four of New York. Um I guess before we get to the more utopian shit, which is where we always like to go on the Antifada, although scientific and utopian, uh, what, what can happen uh, you know, in the medium term, even within a capitalist framework, for us to start taking some of this power back? You mentioned you know, various forms of direct action that have happened, uh, like uh, tenants' rights organizations and rent strikes and things of that sort. Uh, what do you think we can do, start to do right now to build institutions of working class power to try to fight back even under this late, 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 late thing. Right. So, I mean, it's important to recognize that if we are in this problem in part or in large part because of this hyper-concentration of capital into urban real estate, that also means that ca- urban real estate capital is pretty vulnerable. They've put too much into it. Um, and if we strike at it, capitalist costs can be thrown into a certain kind of crisis. We have to be prepared for that crisis. It's not going to be fun, um, but it's an opportunity. And so we should think about how we can take advantage of the vulnerability of all this money that's been sunk into real estate. Um, If there are mass rent strikes, if there is a strong rent control movement, if there are limits on uh, new development in areas that exhibit strong rent caps, if we can decommodify land first in, in small parts and moving up to larger scales, we can actually choke the, uh, the, the, the bottleneck of investment Um, that we've seen in our cities. So that means building up a tenant movement. That means politicizing rent. You know, we we each pay rent uh, every month. More than 2 million people in New York City pay more than half of their income in rent. Um, We've, I think, been successful in politicizing development. What gets built where? We need to be politicizing rent as well. Um, What exactly is this money going toward? Is it going toward the maintenance of the building, which I need to live in so that I don't die? Or is it just going straight to the pockets of a landlord and investors uh, that have put their money into this building? Um, I think we need to look at what we have right now and how we can expand it. So in some places, that means we have limited rent control. We need universal rent control. In some places, it means introducing rent control for the first time. Um, It means looking at prior working class victories around community land trusts. In New York, we have one. Uh, which is the most affordable part of the Lower East Side. Um, That is an opportunity to expand. Uh, We know that it works in that one place. We need to put it into place in others. Um, We have community land trusts in Minneapolis and Burlington and uh, San Francisco and all these other places, but they're small. Um, But the idea of completely decommodifying the land is a thing that we know how to do. Just need Can to you uh, define community land trust for the people that might not know what it is? A community land trust is a form of decommodified land tenure where um, the ownership of the land and the ownership of the buildings is separated. So one group, some sort of nonprofit organization, owns the land. Another group, usually the residents uh, or the users, own the buildings or the garden or whatever it is that's on top. And so they can't speculate the value of the land against the value of the building. Um, and there's usually pretty strict limits placed on what you can do with it. So if it's uh, housing, you can't sell it for more than you bought it for. And that keeps it not only perpetually affordable, but it takes away the opportunity to speculate. 
doesn't matter what happens to the value of the land. It doesn't even matter what happens to the value of the building. You can't make money off of the thing. That takes away um, an avenue of wealth generation for a lot of people, but um, it creates permanently affordable urban space um, and changes people's relationship to space. It, your home doesn't have to be your bank account. Your home can right. actually be your home. Right, right, right. That's really great. Um, I also want to plug the Universal Rent Control Campaign that we're doing right now in New York City DSA in coalition with other community groups. Um, we just had a canvassing day. Uh, what the fuck day is it today? Yesterday. And we'll, we're going to be having a lot more. Um, the rent laws expire in June. So that's super fucking soon. And I think for the most part, people tend to respond much better when you go canvas them to talk about something like universal rent control than just simply asking them to vote for your candidate for office. Right. And not to throw, <clears throat> excuse me, not to throw cold water at this, but I think there was a huge struggle in California. It was Prop 10, right? They were trying to pass a yeah. uh, ordinance that just allowed municipalities to have rent control. Is that correct? And it failed uh, recently, right? Yeah, they, they have a state limitation on what their rent control laws can do. They were trying to get rid of that limitation. Mm. Uh, they did not succeed. There was a whole lot of scare tactics around, well, if we have rent control, then everyone's property values will go down. And there's a whole lot of single family homeowners in California who got scared, even though they had no intention of being landlords themselves, that simply the presence of rent control would um, obliterate their primary and in some cases sole financial asset. And this touches, I think, on when you said that... Uh uh, it is a choke point in the capitalist economy, but we need to be prepared for pushback because even outside of, you know, a land trust or, uh, you know, really strong tenant organizations, even if we were to, you know, <laughs> completely um, fund the um, refabrication, uh, the rehabilitation, I should say, of, say, NYCHA, public housing in New York City and where else it exists in the country, which is sparse, right? We need to start building new public housing. But then this contradiction comes up, which you talk about a lot in the book, which is that as soon as you do that, you are directly interfering with the capitalist market in real estate, in housing. So even to try to propose, oh, let's build 100,000 new units of public housing, which we've done in the past, right? But to do in the future, that's going to come up with immense, immense opposition by capital and its you know, politicians, to be frank, right? Right. I mean, we need to be building the power now. We need to be changing the consciousness of how people think about housing, how people think about public housing, not just as a thing perceived to be failing right now, but as a thing that is a completely viable uh, alternative to private land. Um, in the past, when we created large-scale public housing in the United States, it was done through a program that said, for every new public unit you create, you have to demolish a private unit. Mm. And the, the ideology behind that was, well, we don't want to be messing with the market. We want to be replacing rather than adding to. We don't want to fall into that again, where we end up just demolishing poor people's housing, then building public housing in its place, which some of those people can then move into, but most will never. Uh, we need a, a completely new model. But luckily, those models exist because public housing is actually pretty great in a lot of the rest of the world. It's just yeah, yeah. Jamie and I uh, were in Copenhagen. This is a fun little uh, story. We might have told it before, but fuck it. We'll tell it again. We were with Anders, right, who was actually yeah, in town who right I now. just hung out with yeah. last night, my old roommate Anders, where I used, I used to live with him in a loft building. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we'll get to that in the bonus. Yeah, we'll get to that in the but, bonus. But uh, we were riding bikes around Copenhagen which is a beautiful city, and he was a wonderful host. Shout out to Anders. 
Uh, but we we drove past. We drove. We biked past some uh, some nice normal looking buildings, and he's like, "Those are the ha- public housing projects." And we're like, "Oh wow, they look just like all the other buildings." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Yeah, they didn't want the people who live there to feel bad about themselves or isolated." And we were like, "Wow, Imagine that. what a concept!" <laughs> Instead of some uh, La Cabusier, uh, you know, towers in the park model, where you're kind of um, almost like separating from the rest of the built environment these uh, areas of of fear these zones of fear it's integrated into the landscape in such a way that it doesn't create that kind of uh, stigma right yeah and and not to be too new york centric but the first new york city public housing is first houses in the lower east side which if i'm not mistaken was taking over existing tenement properties and turning them into public housing so again, you would never know that they were public housing as opposed to private housing. We could be doing a lot more of that. Are you saying we could be expropriating buildings that exist right now? Are you saying, as you said in your book, that the state, uh, local, and federal government has been doing that by bailing out banks for years and that that's a process we could actually think about doing ourselves if we had the political and social power to make it happen? In a word, yes. Yeah, all right. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's the mindset, folks. <laughs> what, That's right. what, what would that look like? Because you talked about how the um, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were, and were taking up a lot of these bad mortgages, right, And in order to bail out the uh, banks. But for a moment, for a hot second in the flows of capital and the you know government budget, the government owned those, right, for yeah, like a hot yeah. second? So this we could have done something bank. else with it, right? Absolutely. We could have done something else with it. We could be doing it again also. I mean, it w- basically, the, the federal government um, purchased huge amounts of toxic assets, which meant that those mortgages belonged to the government, which meant that those properties were, in a sense, owned by the public. Uh, but they were then mostly like sold over to Blackstone, the largest private equity firm mm. uh, and, and world's largest landlord. It you know of course that's what the capitalist state was going to do but we can look at that and say you see that we we already do this we could be right. doing it for the complete opposite yeah purpose. well maybe if we have a democratic socialist for president uh, when the next crash happens things will go a bit differently perhaps it's going to take a lot but yeah it's a start it's definitely I mean, a start but I think that you were talking about re envisioning our relationship to housing and renting. I mean, that's something that could be happening before a Bernie Sanders or an AOC is president, right? So that we have not just ideologically, but also in terms of like our own socialist policies, we have those built on the ground so that we can propose that and push for that when the next strike, uh, when the next, um, sorry, crash comes, because this speculative bubble economy is prone to these busts. It has to be that way. I think it's not only that it can be that way. I think it has to be. Um, we're not going to get this as a gift from President Sanders. It's it's going to be because people are doing it already, mm-hmm. and having a different president will protect us a little bit more from the army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the mindset. I uh, I was testing you, and you passed. So <laughs> good job. You passed the you passed the reformism test. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, we always like to look ahead to the future here at the Antifada. So um, what are some measures that have been taken to decommodify housing under the framework of actually existing socialism in the world? And what are some possibilities when designing our ideal socialist future? Uh, before you answer that, can you talk about the Karl Marxhof in uh, Red Vienna? Have you been there? I know I've seen pictures, though. It looks awesome. Yeah, I've never what, been there either. I mean, it's you know a, about it, though, right? I know about it. Yeah. It's an enormous uh, public housing development built in... 20s. Yeah, that's right. All right, 1920s um, in Red Vienna. 
um, I, it's something like the, the longest public housing block. <laughs> right. It's not the tallest, but it's the longest. Uh, and it's gorgeous. It's like a building that anyone would see and think, wow, this is amazing housing. I would love to live here. They're basically palaces for the people. Uh, and they were built extensively in Red Vienna um, under this framework of modern housing that we're going to have housing that is uh, luxurious but cheap and is going to have a lot of common features so that social reproduction tasks don't have to be done in isolation in your home in this gendered way. Um, they can happen collectively as well. So we can have shared childcare spaces and shared kitchens and also the privacy of our own apartments. Sounds good. Sounds pretty good, right? They had pools too. Oh, oh fuck yeah. yeah. Pools Ooh, hot tubs. <laughs> can we have hot tubs in ours? <laughs> I think we can make that. I happen. am the jacuzzi uh, journalist. <laughs> You're also a uh, hot tub uh, socialist. So it's perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and, yeah, so the Karl Marxhoff uh, is an example all the way back from the 1920s. And that was even uh, just municipal socialism, right? Right. Uh, that and was then, Vienna, not Austria. Right. And, and New York City as... Um, I think it was Kim Moody said went from uh, a welfare state to real estate. Yep. It was a uh, I think Josh Freeman called New York City the um, largest social democratic polity in the United States. So even done on that smaller scale, but even like if we look at Cuba or the yeah. USSR or Singapore, you know, how do we kind of take these examples and make a larger utopian vision that builds off of them? Right. And we should say that here in New York City, as in Philadelphia and some other places, um, Unions collectively looked at that Red Vienna model and say, let's see what we can do here uh, and built up this network of union or worker owned cooperatives. Electchester. Uh, Electchester for the electricians. Uh, the garment workers produced the most of them in New York City. Now, they also built a lot of those by evicting non union workers. And so that's once again, we can't just reproduce that model. But mm-hmm. the housing itself is pretty nice. Um, Electchester was built on a golf course, so that was a victory. Oh, rich great! Yes, nice. expropriate the golf courses yeah. and build cooperative housing. But Boom. it was obscenely segregated, oh, and okay. there were uh, civil rights demonstrations outside <laughs> there for a long time. IBW do better. Yes, yeah, they're already doing better. Local three, but yeah. It seems like unions could do so much if they were just way more radical. I mean, I say just like that's not a huge ask, but like. No. I think you were talking about in your talk a little bit the different ways that building trades unions could stand in solidarity with working class people in the places where they're building the buildings. Well, right? b- before I let him answer that, when I, I have to do picket duty every year for my union, so I need to go on at least one picket. And one year they bust us up to Albany to defend 421A. No, <laughs> oh, of swear, course they yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. You can't make this shit up. So, so to defend the that's the uh, inclusionary zoning law, right? That, no, uh, well, no, it's, or, no, uh, it's tax, tax breaks. Tax breaks right. for developers. That, yeah. Um, so mm. they have to produce some affordable housing, but some of it is market rate housing that is rent controlled. So like you could have a $30,000 rent controlled unit in Wall Street. <laughs> cool. mm. <laughs> yeah, that's re- that's real sustainable. Yeah, but our, that- our house, actually, our apartment is currently, quote unquote, rent stabilized. Mm-hmm. But more, more like about they, that in the bonus. <laughs> they got the tax break. But oh, yeah, I guess that's for the bonus. That's, but it, it's fine. The Let's, maximum legal rent is like way, way, way more than what they can currently get for it. So, so the stabilization does nothing for us. Yeah. Yes. But besides my my little stupid anecdote there, yeah. I had a larger point, which is that <laughs> um, folks, <clears throat> socialists, uh, the utopians out there who want to see a post-capitalist society often look to the point of production as where things happen. And of course, ultimately, you know, a lot has to happen there. But then you mentioned the unions and what they've done in terms of social reproduction. 
construction and building cooperative housing in places like New York City and elsewhere. Um, I think, is it fair to say that uh, in order for us to even push these things forward, the working class is going to need reinvigorated, powerful, radical, militant unions again to, to make this happen to begin with, to, to start to address this? Yeah, I think it's like climate change. It's not going to happen without the labor movement. But I also like to think about labor a little bit more expansively and to think about social reproductive labor and cultural production labor and all that stuff that goes into making space, making urban neighborhoods, and all that stuff that creates value that capitalists then uh, prey on. That's also labor. And so then we think of the housing movement as a labor movement because we put all this labor into building up our neighborhoods. Um, we then need tenant unions and other uh, forms of organization to collectivize and rather, be, rather than be individuals fighting on that front. That's a really good way to think about it. And the more uh, we break the power of uh, non-union contractors in New York City, the uh, more goes into uh, me and Jamie's pension fund. So, uh, you know, it's a win-win-win. Oh, boy. Although we do want to abolish pensions someday. Let's get utopian. Right. All right. So based on, like, what okay. we've seen in under really existing socialism, yeah, yeah. which has some things, you know, to recommend it, and right. also social democratic experiments, like, mm -hmm. how can we imagine a long-term vision for decommodified, non-capitalist shelter and housing? Right. Um, well, I mean... I think everyone who can should go to Cuba, to go to Havana and see what it's like in a place where basically all housing is public housing. Um, and that's also an environment where it's not public housing in the U.S. model where we tore out the neighborhood and we built up these towers. It is the old built environment taken over by the revolutionary government. I've seen the pictures. It's fucking beautiful, right? It's beautiful. And parts of it are falling apart and parts of it are a little bit nicer. And there's a few kind of super blocks of Soviet style housing out by the beach. But like most of the city of Havana is the city of Havana as it was built. And if you then think about like, well, what would New York City look like under those conditions? We don't have to imagine the total demolition of our neighborhoods, including those rich, nice places where we can't afford to live. Right. We think of the expropriation of them and what we would do with Fifth Avenue, mm. for example. Well, what wouldn't we do with it? <laughs> before you go on, I'd like to point to your excellent article in The Guardian talking shit on the mm. Hudson Yards development and say that of all the places in New York City that might be recuperated for the working class, <laughs> we might have to get rid of Hudson Yards. Yeah. As you, it's a disgusting... Oh, God. Yeah, Mike Glass Davis wrote a, an article in Jacobin in the first issue that I was ever in, which was the city's issue in like 2014. It was called B-52 Urbanism. What? And he said that he used to have a, a, an exercise in one of his design studios where we would ask his students, if you could blow up any <laughs> building in this city, killing no one, you have to decide which one it was to, to like get them to, to think in a kind of like angry, destructive kind of way. And so it How sounds pure like is your hate style. Yeah, your, your answer is Hudson Yards. It, it sure is, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. in, in no small thanks to you because you were the one that wrote that the article. That thing, it really out. does. Like, I can't not see like a fast food chicken when I look <laughs> at it now. You don't want to go to see theater in like a glorified handbag with on wheels. That's literally what the, the, the shed. Oh my god! Shed or looks like. I, yeah, I don't want to go do business in like a fucking maggot-infested kebab or whatever they <laughs> compared it to. We'll, we'll put links in the show notes so people know what we're yeah. talking about. The Sam's article, but sorry, go on. I just want to talk shit on that disgusting development. It's horrible, <laughs> and and think of the opportunity too, right? I mean, that was the largest buildable space in Manhattan, and that's what we did with it. Um, anyway, just talking about Havana because it really opened my eyes up to the possibilities 
Um, not that I didn't know it existed before, not that it's perfect because it's not, um, but to th not think about a completely new city, but the city you actually have right now, but taken over um, through revolutionary action is something that everyone who can should experience. Mm. So not tearing down, but uh, reappropriating. And I happen to like my city. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, it's a great I, city. I hate the fucking landlords, but <laughs> I like the city. And I think people feel the same way about Austin or Cincinnati or Portland or Berlin or London, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's the social relations that are corrupt and rotten, not necessarily the built environment itself. Right. And maybe, so this is another thing. If we had socialized land, if we had public sovereignty over planning, if we had regional planning rather than every municipality for itself, we might get to the point where we could have an actual thought about what kind of city we want to live in. Right now, it's really hard because every time we think about changing it, we think about who's going to get rich off of that and who's going to get displaced by that. I would love to think about what density level would actually be nice. What density yeah. level would be good for the environment? Right. You know, what, <laughs> what public transit do we need? But whenever, when we're stuck in this system where the the landlords expropriate all the value we create anytime we expand the the subways we create huge amounts of value for a whole bunch of people which is translated into rising rents which means displacement right like we extended the seven line out to hudson yards further into manhattan we should have sent it out deeper into flushing sorry non-new yorkers but yeah. or to new jersey as they said to sakakis yeah right but we didn't do any of those things and if we had we would have had to deal with the consequences of extraordinarily rising land values mm. let me add a utopian sheen to uh, what you've already said which i think is it's very inspiring um think about how much go down to you know go to midtown manhattan or go down to wall street and look up at those buildings most of which are old no, some of which are old, but most of them are pretty beautiful and nice and usable, right? And think about the amount of space turned over under capitalism to moving pieces of paper around, to moving money around, right? Yeah. In terms of like lacking in built infrastructure, imagine if we had a, a, a planned society or a communist society, a society without money, how much fewer how much how much less space would be used up in like people sitting around in offices all the time or people like you know like things like uh, i don't know nail salons or whatever the case may be things that people can do collectively in terms of social reproduction like a lot of those office buildings that exist right now could be turned over to public use for things that are actually valuable not like tps reports <laughs> right um and so it's space and it's also time right huge amounts of space are dedicated to this uh worthless finance industry and huge amounts of time are dedicated to bullshit jobs and other things that, you know, are not done for any uh, collective purpose. And so, yeah, we would have a lot more space. We'd have a lot more time. Um, it's hard to even imagine what we would do mm. with wall street without wall street. And when I talk shit on nail salons, I was talking about them as capitalist enterprises. I think entire buildings in Manhattan will be turned over for people to go and do their nails together right. cooperatively. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what I meant. You by could that. take turns. Yeah, it'd be great. You do my nails, I'll do yours. Exactly, not wage labor, just like collective nail. Maybe filing. we can make a like a little massage circle or something. <laughs> Rub each other's shoulders. A cuddle puddle, even perhaps slash nail collective. Yeah, because like there's nail salons where they're like rub your shoulders for you while your nails are drying. But who's yeah. going to rub their shoulders? And what about the places you go where you dip your feet in the water and the fish eat off the dead skin? That should be collectivized, too. Absolutely. Sh we shouldn't have to pay for that shit. That should be a human right. But like the most important thing that I think we need to do uh, with a lot of this 
soon to be empty god willing public space is bring back the public bathhouses oh, they play a big yeah. role in uh the mars trilogy by kim stanley <laughs> yes. robinson that we talked yeah. about where everyone Crutches. just goes and like chills the fuck out in the yeah. water and sometimes they have some sexy times there folks what if plato's retreat but communist <laughs> like it would be so good and the club scene like, oh my god like consent is very important obviously you don't have to have public sex in the bathhouse if you don't want to <laughs> but if you do it's there for you and no one will judge you and it's great and everybody will have better collective sex it won't be like weird like manafort uh roger stone ah, uh, poly stuff it'll be <laughs> absolutely like, not uh, yeah roger stone will not play any part in our revolution no certainly not i i mean there'd also be more space to be by yourself Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are living in very crowded conditions under capitalism. I mean, that's been the case in the Industrial Revolution. It's the case right now. Oh, yeah. It's not even just the poor anymore. It's like fucking five college graduates sharing a two-bedroom apartment or whatever. Oh, yeah. When I was reading your book, too, I when Jamie was talking about the pods and we were discussing it, uh, my mind went back to that famous, uh, one of the famous Jacob Rees photographs. Uh, of people living in tenement conditions. It was like eight people in a room and you could see the cots and people were sleeping in shifts. Shift like this housing. is yes, mm-hmm. this is yes. the future that cap this is the barracks this capitalism the that they want. There's the present. Right. They want that for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. so space, personal space is super important as well. Not to mention all the things that our particular mode of production does to nature and wildlife. Right. I can imagine that in a, a rational society, not just the cities, but also the countrysides too, would be freed up uh, for all sorts of social activity that mm. we don't have the time to do right now or even have the access. Yeah. All of the things that people scared you about during the Cold War that communism was going to do, capitalism has already done and is in the process of intensifying. Yeah. Like, oh, you don't have freedom to decide where you live or what you do with your time. Like, spoiler alert, that's already here. (laughs) Everyone lives in depressing buildings. You'll get in your you'll you'll go in your pod and shut up, okay? You you give what the the speculators at Blackstone will. will oh no! Allow you. People are gonna wait an hour long bread lines, bitch. You wait an hour for brunch all the time, <laughs> and then you have to pay for it at the end. So like like I said in my tweet the other day that a lot of people seem to like uh, socialized brunch will reduce wait times and expand access. <laughs> B for a brunch for all. <laughs>